From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Fagan Indeterminate. Loose Fagan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. And I'm your co-host, Raji Pudar Agarwal. Our guest today is John Murphy. John Murphy is is an alumnus of Framingham State University, a university in Massachusetts which has had 11 different names since 1839. His time there only involved two, and he graduated in 2011 to work at ITR Economics, a consulting firm. He then returned to school, getting his master's degree from our esteemed department in 2018 and continuing to his Ph.D. here as an Adam Smith Fellow. He's already an adjunct professor at Frederick Community College, and he's a graduate lecturer in our esteemed department. His website is called A Force for Good, and it's pretty good. Uh, Thanks for being here, John. Thank you for having me, and good afternoon to all of you out there in Radio Land. <laughs> Very exciting, yes. Um, we are excited to have you here, John, because you uh, you have a passion for teaching, you have a passion for economics, and uh, definitely want to kind of poke your brain a little bit about it. But first, I want to ask you, uh, why did you choose to go back to school after working in the private sector? Uh, well, I was working uh, in the private sector for about five years. I was enjoying my time there, but I was starting to get bored. Uh, I was looking for something else to do. Uh, and I was debating either a change in job or a change in career. Uh, ultimately, I decided to go for the career change and narrowed it down to either a Ph.D. in economics or seminary. Uh, and George Mason University gave me the better option, uh, the better offer, and uh, <laughs> which I guess kind of says something about how I would have done if I went to seminary, given that I chose money. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was. Uh, Yeah, the private sector was great, but after a while, the money they started paying me wasn't quite enough. And even though I liked my job, I just got – it wasn't doing it for me. Okay. So so you you came out of there, and and, and what was it about GMU that drew you away from Massachusetts and your beloved Red Sox? Uh, Well, it certainly wasn't the sports teams, and I realized (laughs) I can never walk alone in Washington, D.C. now. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So actually, I – first heard about George Mason uh, when I was an undergrad at Framingham State. Uh, and Framingham State, it was, you know, your classic um, neoclassical economics uh, education. And I was, you know, I was enjoying it, getting the standard Keynesian stuff. Uh, but I kept having these questions, um, like, you know, the, these models don't quite seem to explain everything. They explain a lot, and I th- think there is a lot of virtue in the Keynesian economics, um, but it wasn't quite everything. So a um, couple of my professors uh, at Framingham State, uh, Don McRitchie, uh, who I believe now is a retired, and Mike Enns, who's now down at Roanoke College here in Virginia, pointed me towards uh, Don Boudreau's blog, Cafe Hayek. Uh, long story short, I started commenting on that um, my senior year of uh, undergrad and uh, while I was working, which is to say I was commenting on blogs when I should have been working, um, and uh, struck up a friendship with another commenter there. Uh, she is also close to Don Boudreau and said, oh, you need to email Don and uh, get, you know, get to know him. So I emailed Don. Uh, he and I started talking via uh, email. And in 2013, I came down to this area to uh, visit a friend of mine who worked for then Massachusetts Senator Scott Brown. And I figured while I'm here, I might as well jaunt over to Fairfax. So came over here, met Don, 
um, and just kind of fell in love with the campus, fell in love with the the mentality and the attitude here that it's more than just economics. Economics is obviously what we do, but there's philosophy, there's uh, law, there's humanity. You know, this is this program really treats economics as a social science as opposed to you know just a bunch of number crunchers that we look at from you know an eagle eagle perspective where everybody is just uh maximizing profit absolutely and and so what so what you're saying is that emailing a professor led to good things oh yes and also <laughs> slacking off when i should have been doing the work for which i get paid there you go there that you go. said i do not endorse that as a uh method of career advancement <laughs> okay i'm glad we cover your bases there um so you mentioned professor boudreau's blog cafe hayek um your blog seems to be modeled on it um with your quotes of the day and your open letters to the new york times uh, do you ever send any of those in as letters to the editor i've sent them in um the only thing i've ever gotten published as a letter to the editor is a small thing I sent to the um, Concord, New Hampshire uh, newspaper, the Concord Monitor. Okay. Um, but, I mean, you know, I'm just a grad student from Fairfax, Virginia. <laughs> Nobody cares what I have to say yet. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so you recently wrote a post on there uh, on the economic way of thinking and um, cautioning economists against scientism, echoing uh, Friedrich Hayek with that. Um, you said, uh, I'll read a quote from there. Let us not be mere maximizers, mere number crunchers. Let us be scholars of the grand tapestry of life. Uh, could you tell us more about what you mean by that and why you feel so passionately about it? Sure. So, you know, standard neoclassical economics is everybody's just utility maximizers. All we're doing is looking to maximize our net welfare. Well, the problem with that is it takes out all the humane, all the humanity out of humans. That's what computers do. That's what robots do. Those little machines that you see running around campus that look like the Death Star mouse robots, <laughs> th that's what they're doing is they're maximizing. They're running algorithms to figure out the fastest route from A to B. And we're not like that. Humans have passions. We have sympathies. We have sentiments. We care about things, and we care about other people. And when economists forget that, it leads to a lot of very, very silly conclusions and a lot of very silly uh, comments. And even sometimes Nobel Prize winners forget this fact as well. And you, they'll come out and say, okay, I have this beautiful model here. Well, the people aren't doing – uh, people aren't doing what the model predicts. Therefore, the people must be wrong, and we need to nudge them in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the big revolution started at University of Virginia, eventually came here to GMU with Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock. I mean, essentially, Gordon Tullock goes into Jim Buchanan's office and says, hey, what if politicians are just like us? <laughs> and, you know, they have this, these passions and, and things and you know, how does that affect their behavior? Keyword there is behavior. Mm. Um, and so I find that so passionate. One is a way of putting economics more on a solid scientific foundation as opposed to scientism. Scientism is just kind of going through the motions um, and uh, looking like you're doing science with uh, regressions and all that stuff, uh, with models, with fancy mathematics, but no, not actually – doing anything to advance our knowledge, which is how I see science is about cataloging and advancing knowledge. And there's just so much interesting things about people that for some reason we just assume it away mm -hmm. because it makes the math weird. Um, one of the things that I'm doing right now, I, I'm i a huge fantasy nerd and sci-fi nerd, but <laughs> fantasy nerd, and I've been reading a lot of fairy tales lately. And 
last semester when I taught law and economics here at George Mason, Econ 415, I did a lecture on fairy courts and devil courts and relating that, that to contract law. You know, these are, this is a very ingrained thing in our psyche, this idea of a deal with the devil or, um, you know, ironic, ironic deals. It's such a, a, an important part of pop culture. The Simpsons have done it. Shakespeare has done it. You know, when a, a trope goes for five, almost 500 years, it's got staying power. Why, don't, why aren't we looking at that? You know, I, I think a lot of economists, if they're only looking at the numbers – and not the humanity will miss these very interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, and, and I think um, there's a lot to it beyond. Um, there, there's 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 just so much beyond what we know about these things. But Raji's a math major. I don't know if you have any. If you, do you have anything to say about 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 the math of this? Um, do you have a do you have a defensive math you'd like to make, or do you think uh, what, what do you think about economics and and, and as it compares to math? Um, so I've recently learned that just doing math is not very useful as an economist, uh, mostly because, as you said, you have pretty models, but they don't say very much, and economic history is extremely important. I'm curious, when you teach all of your courses, um, do you see people develop this intuition for like engaging with economic history and like put, coupling it with math, and like to what extent people have it, and how it evolves over the period of like you talking about you know avoiding scientism? Uh, yeah, I mean... I- I think mathematical economics is very important. Uh, math – one of the things that the math does is it forces out our hidden assumptions. So I'm a big proponent in doing the regressions and doing the mathematics and mathematizing it but understanding what that actually says. So when I teach the more math-heavy um, courses, not so much Econ 101, the intro stuff, I try to stay away from math and focus solely on the intuition. Um, but I also try and pull out – uh, what, it is, what is it that we're actually doing here? What is this model actually saying? In my international trade course, which was very math-heavy, less so than my law and econ course, but that there were still mathematical elements, I found it really helped clarify the students' thinking um, if they could translate it into mathematics and then, more importantly, translate the mathematics back into English. So I, I think we need a healthy combination of both, and I try to teach economics that way despite the fact I am terrible at mathematics. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah, no, I, yeah, the balancing act is always difficult, I think, and, um, and, and I'm, glad that, uh, I'm glad that we've got somebody coming up and trying to solve the problem. Uh, <laughs> um, so the field of law and economics, you mentioned that you've, you've taught this before, and you did an event with Econ Society last year uh, about law and economics, which was, which was fascinating. Um, it, it thrives on these specific examples that people come up with. So I remember um, we had an event last year at Free Econ Society as well with Joshua Wright from the uh, law school, and he talked about law and economics. He had this example about reusable bags that was very um, vivid and how it caused an E. coli outbreak in uh, in San Francisco and how they were able to trace this back using economics to um, to reusable bags. And um, Ronald Coase, of course, has his famous example in his paper where he talks about sparks coming off of trains and destroying crops. Do you have a go-to uh, law and economics example that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think probably my favorite. There are a bunch of them that I like. My favorite is uh, comes from Gordon Tullock, and it's the idea of this Tullock spike is, I think, what it's called now. And he's addressing the idea – 
sort of, oh, there's a problem here and we need to address it at all costs. And uh, in this particular example, it's car accidents. And, you know, car accidents are bad. People die or get injured, whatever. Um, Hot take on this podcast. Car accidents are bad. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's my great contribution. Um, So he asks the question, why then don't we do absolutely everything we can to prevent them? Because one way we could prevent them very easily, put a gigantic long metal spike in every single steering wheel. I guarantee you there will be no more car accidents because the cost of the car accident will be you die or lose an eye at the very least. And there were variations on that theme um, both by Tulloch and other people. But I love that example um, because it really drives home the idea of marginal thinking, how – much are we willing to give up in order to gain smaller and smaller benefits? Um, and that's a very uh, intuitive, I think, example for students and also kind of uh, graphic. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit morbid there, a little shocking, absolutely. I get a dark sense of humor. <laughs> Certainly. Uh, you've also taught uh, international economics, and um, I always think that name is kind of weird. It's like internet. Like, what makes that different from economics? But, like, what is it about national borders that make it different and make it so that it's its its own class? I mean, there's really nothing from the economic perspective that changes. The accounting matters. Uh, in, um, international economics is a form of welfare economics. And it's sort of an arbitrary distinction. Well, we count the welfare um, to domestic citizens but not foreign citizens. And certain elements uh, of international trade theory, the standard trade model that you get in uh, Krugman's book and any standard econ book, um, depends heavily on that distinction. For example, the optimal tariff is an interesting little theoretical outcome where uh, if a country has some sort of market power and they – can costlessly impose a tariff that is non-zero but also still small, they can maximize net um, net benefits from trade. Um, I'm not going to go into details how it works. Just trust me on that. But the only reason why that results in a net benefit increase is because we're not counting the costs to foreigners that um, that tax um, imposes. We include that and any tariff above zero uh, is um, is uh, net welfare reducing. And that's an arbitra- arbitrary distinction. And there are reasons you may not want to include the um, welfare to foreign citizens, to foreign producers and consumers. Uh, that's all well and good, but that's a judgment call. Uh, and one thing we need to be very, very careful about. And that's a point that I, I try to emphasize when I teach that class is like the economics are exactly the same as – you're going to get an econ 101 or you know the advanced the intermediate classes which i think are what 301 and 302 whatever they are here but it's the accounting that matters and again this leads into my conversation we are not accountants we are not being countered these are real people we're talking about here um speaking of international trade columbus day just passed and the economic conversation in columbus day is something like the colombian exchange was the first event in globalization any hot takes on that nope <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't know much about uh, that, so I'm, oh, gonna, okay. I'm gonna punt on that question. Sure. 
What about other historic things in the globalization timeline? I mean, I think probably the first or one of the big things I would argue that got us going towards globalization was actually the Cobden-Chevalier Treaty, uh, which was a free trade agreement between the French and the British in 1864, I want to say. Richard Cobden was a very influential uh, British um, statesman, close friends with Frederick Bassiat, and he worked very, very closely with um, the uh, French Minister of Commerce, I believe his name was uh, his last name was Chevalier. I'm blanking on his first name right now. I want to say Michael. Um, and so they created this probably one of the first, if not the first, free trade agreements, which I put a lot of emphasis on that in my own thinking, because not even half a century earlier, within Cobden's lifetime, France and Britain were at war. Uh, you had the the um, the regicide wars and the wars of Napoleon and all that during the French Revolution and the years following. Napoleon was defeated in the 18-teens. I'm blanking on the exact time right now. And here we are just 40 years later. They're signing this agreement where they eliminate pretty much all tariffs between the two of them. I have a theory um, or a hypothesis. I haven't really thought much about this, but I'd like to test it at some point. I wonder how much influence that treaty had on uh, later the French-British alliances in World War I and II, um, which you know ultimately helped preserve um, a relatively liberal Europe, both from German empiricism and later German fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect, again, with no evidence uh, other than kind of a gut feeling that uh, the two becoming more closely tied commercially helped uh, form this political alliance that would later be key. And when you say that that liberal liberal Europe, you're meaning liberal in the sense of of Adam Smith, in the sense of David Hume, that classical liberal. Um, and uh, this podcast is called Loose Vegan and Determinate, so we have to talk about Adam Smith. We don't really have a choice. Um, what, what would you what would you say is the most important way that Adam Smith, even though he was this Scottish guy, you know, two hundred plus years ago? How does he fit into uh, the work that you do today? Uh, Well, it's actually funny you should say that. I was just working on my dissertation before coming here. Um, And the theory of moral sentiments, I think, is actually a highly economic work. Uh, Smith would not have classified it as such, mostly because he didn't have that uh, word. But it's um, a lot of – it's how we interact with one another. And ultimately, that's what economics is, is about. It's not about this maximizing. It's about exchange. It's about interaction. So I think that Adam Smith has really made me a better microeconomist by by um, forcing me through theory of moral sentiments and wealth of nations to remember that there are institutions, that there are these rules, both formal and informal, that we all obey, that we do care about what other people think of us. And that in turn influences our behavior, uh, who we deal with and who we want to deal with, things like that. It's almost, Adam Smith is almost a um, memento mori, you know, remember thou art mortal um, to economists and to people that, you know, we we are dealing with folks here who have these feelings and all that and not to get swept up in the beauty of our own, our own um, conceptions. Mm-hmm. Certainly, and I think that's a role 
um, that's a role as well that Hayek plays in the in the 20th century, kind of taking that over from Smith, uh, especially with his article "Use of Knowledge in Society" from 1945, where he basically lays out that if you think the problem is this allocative problem, if you think the problem is we just need to know. You know, we just need to know more things and then we can allocate things correctly. You're viewing the problem wrong. That's not the problem. We can't possibly solve that because and the way the way I uh, the way I read Hayek, what I think he's telling us is, hey, you're not God. Right. Like, don't try to play God because you're not God. And I think that's um, I think that's an important thing that Smith was on to so much earlier. Yeah. And I I think actually the reference you just made that we are not God is important because every once in a while I'll hear somebody talk about the story in the Old Testament where I believe um, it was Joseph who was the Pharaoh's advisor uh, where he foresaw that there was famine coming for Egypt and had the Pharaoh you know forcibly stock up grain for the the famine coming and some people will say, oh, yeah, you know, that's proof that central planning can work because if the market just happened, uh, there would have been famine. And I'd like to point out, yeah, but Joseph literally had God in his ear saying, this is happening and this is how long it will take. Uh-huh. We don't have that. And, you know, a lot of that, the knowledge that we do possess is inarticulate. We can't convey it. Even if we know we have it, we can't. And if anybody doesn't believe me, Take a friend, go to the JC, especially at lunchtime or dinner time when it's crowded, blindfold your friend and have them and you tell them how to walk through the JC. How many people are you going to bump into? Probably a lot. Mm. Whereas in reality, at that same time, if you have your eyes, your ears, and your senses going, you're not going to bump into a lot of people. You know, you're going to make those small little adjustments at the last, very last second that allow you to get around to coordinate. You know, that's not omniscient or omnipotent knowledge, it's not, you don't need to be godlike, you just need to be aware. What central planning tri- uh, tries to do is replicate that awareness, but it just simply does not have the knowledge, the information, and the sentiment necessary to do exactly that. What do you think is the extent of the power of an economist? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, the egoist in me says, you know, our power is unlimited. um, But I I think the role of the economist is mainly advisory, at least in the role of of public policy. Um, Our models and our insights can tell us what are the likely outcomes of, you know, policy X, Y, and Z. What does the economic way of thinking say? But it doesn't tell us anything about what policies should be adopted. And for that, we need moral philosophy. We need law. We need um, more than that. And so economics, and if you forgive me, I'm blatantly stealing from Jim Buchanan here. Um, economics has a lot to learn from its uh, neighbor sciences, from engineering, from mathematics, from law, from philosophy. And also we have a lot to contribute between the two. Uh, between uh, with those sciences as well. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, economists, we need to get off our own high horses and interact more with other departments. Here at GMU, we're quite good at that. But there are other departments where, you know, economics is economics and philosophy is philosophy and never the twain shall meet. 
Um, we're seeing a, we are seeing a movement away from that even in the mainstream departments now. There's a book out by Nobel laureate uh, Jean Tirole, I think is how you pronounce his name, and I'm sorry if I get it wrong, uh, called Economics for the Common Good. Uh, I don't – it's a good book. I, it is worth reading even though I disagree with um, a lot of his comments in it. But he is trying to make it inter, uh, economics interact with other sciences. Uh, Danny Roderick, who is an economist at um, Harvard University, um, he is a very interesting person to read, even though I disagree with pretty much everything he says. He's getting economics to interact with other sciences and with with real people, and a lot of his objections to um, free trade are based on those grounds. So if folks are looking for somebody to read who is outside the GMU sphere – and in fact, in some ways, quite hostile to it. I highly recommend Danny Roderick. He's a very interesting person. I'm glad that we're getting reading recommendations from outside the GMU sphere because sometimes we, uh, sometimes I feel like we 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 we, we isolate ourselves a little bit. Would you would you agree with that? It's very easy to do. Yeah. Um, especially here in academia, uh, there's a reason why they call it the ivory tower. Yeah, Smith um, talks about it in TMS. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, going on back then too. <laughs> yeah, and probably it was even a bigger issue for him because I mean, at least we have the internet, mm-hmm. uh, which means for better or for worse, you're interacting with views you don't like. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's it's very, very, very easy to do. Um, you know, there's this idea, and I forget exactly what it's called, but you know, we do seek we do seek um, uh, approval. And so it's easy to say things and read things that people you approve of approve of. Mm -hmm. So then you can get approved by their approval of your approval. (laughs) Um, So it's – yeah, it's very important. And I try my best to read and uh, push back against the GMU sphere um, wherever I can. Um, You know, in some ways, I'm not a typical GMU economist. Uh, I'm not an anarcho-capitalist, which is not to say everybody in the department is, uh, but um, I'm a classical liberal, but I came to that in a very weird way. I came to classical liberalism uh, in some ways through the hard left and in some ways through the hard right. Hmm. And I still have a lot of sympathies towards progressivism and nationalism and um, things like that. Uh, And I've adopted a lot of the views that I have because I believe they are the best for advancing or eliminating poverty and advancing human welfare globally. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think avoiding straw manning and having honest conversations with folks is how we're going to best spread this message of classical liberalism, of freedom, of human dignity, Um, because the progressives do care. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, they do care about other people. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, evil corporatists who are in the pockets of George Soros, just like we're not evil corporatists in the pockets of, of, um, um, Charles Koch. You know, that, that sort of rhetoric doesn't do anything to help anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe, uh, and, you know, forming alliances where we can, an alliance doesn't mean we have to be BFFs, you know, it's forming alliance on certain issues. And if we uh, work with the left on things like drug, um, you know, the drug war and military interventionism, things like that, we can have big victories. And if we work on the right, work with the right on um, certain issues, uh, 
we can have uh, big victories as well. But the first step of that is actually listening to what they have to say and figuring out where our areas of agreement are. How much of that background do you think is ju- is just from uh, from living in Massachusetts? Oh, I'm, I mean, I'm sure yeah. a good part of it. Um, you know, we're always products of where we are. Mm-hmm. So I can't quantify it because my parents were never super left or super right. They they okay. just sort of, you know, they're, they're moderates. They voted Republican. They voted Democrat. They voted Libertarian. Okay. Um, you know, my twin brother was hippie crunchy granola for a little while Mm. then he joined the army all right wow okay yeah um (laughs) you know so uh, the murphy clan is a weird bunch (laughs) (laughs) sorry mom but we are (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's happened it happens to everyone What, what what's one thing about adam smith because i know this is a this is a focus of your research you know a lot about this uh what's one thing about adam smith that you think most people don't know about him that they should know about him Ah, you know what his first job was? I don't know what his first job was. He was not a professor of economics, which is that he wasn't hired. You know, economics didn't exist. Uh huh. He was not a professor of moral philosophy, which is the job he actually had. His first job, he was a professor of rhetoric. He was an English professor. Wow. Yeah, he was hired originally to be uh, an English professor. Okay. Professor of rhetoric, and I, I only actually just found this out this summer. Um, I was talking with Sarah Squire of the Liberty Fund, and she pointed that out to me. Hmm. She said, oh, yeah, you economists, you always want to grab Adam Smith. He was ours first. He was an English <laughs> professor. Uh, and she's right. And once I realized that, a lot of his writing becomes a lot more interesting. There are tons of literary references. Oh, yeah. And just going back to fairies, uh, a lot of fairy references as well. He talks about charm. He talks about... Um, glamour. He talks about these words that, um, in his time, more so than ours, were very much tied up in fairy tales and with the mischief, uh, the mischievousness of fairies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that kind of puts a lot of his his the idea that he's a was an English professor puts a lot of his references and a lot of his work into perspective. And it's something I try to do. Um, a lot of my writing has literary references in it. I like to reference uh, Dante's Inferno a lot. Um, a lot of my stuff is showing up more, you know, fairy tales and all, because I've been reading that a lot lately. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I'm working on something for, uh, not quite sure where it'll get published, um, but it's just a short little article. I just finished reading a series called uh, The Dresden Files, mm-hmm. which is actually very smithian in its philosophy that i i kind of want to write that up at some point um you know when i'm not looking at a dissertation and 10 trillion other (laughs) obligations makes sense makes sense yeah and and just so we avoid you know we've talked a lot about adam smith so far in this podcast um and just to avoid any criticism of being just a bunch of smith boosters in here what's one thing about adam smith that you really don't like and you really and, and you think he's really bad on? Um, ooh, that's a good question. Um, it's not a question because I don't think he's bad on anything. It's a question of narrowing it down. Mm-hmm. Um, he can be difficult to read sometimes, but that's a fairly mild criticism. I wish he was more mathematically precise with some of his reasoning. He gets a little. Uh, hand wavy at times. Um, if you read Theory of Moral Sentiments, he talks about, you know, 
X is the greatest corrupter of our moral compass. And he says that like nine times. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, which, about nine different things. Yeah, about yeah. nine different things. <laughs> and um, he's doing it for rhetorical par- purposes. But um, there are times in Wealth of Nations where I wish he was more mathematically precise. Um, and, you know, I'm not talking go deep down into models, but – one thing I find is if I'm struggling with a concept, writing it down mathematically helps me clarify my thinking. And I think Smith, for all of his brilliance, uh, does not do that. And sometimes he makes hidden assumptions that he even he himself is not aware that he's doing, and it actually ends up weakening, weakening his case a little bit. Let's go back to let's go back to teaching now. I know this is something you're, you're passionate about. I eventually want to do a whole podcast just on teaching, and I'm trying to get. Andrew Humphreys to do it. Andrew's like the best. Could you could you peer pressure him a little bit to try to get him to do that? Yes, thank yes, you. I, can. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so uh, well, hopefully, hopefully we'll get him on to do that. But I want to ask you a couple of questions about it too. Um, you have taught, as I mentioned at the beginning, you've taught introductory economics, you've taught international economics, you've taught law and economics. Which of those do you enjoy teaching the most, and which do you find the most interesting? If there's a difference between the two. The one I enjoy teaching the most is introduction, uh, the intro, intro courses. Uh, you're still getting a lot of the folks who don't quite know what economics is. Um, and as such, I can you know, really, uh, I think, convey why I love this topic so much. So at Frederick Community College, I teach two half-semester courses. And starting on Monday, I'm teaching uh, uh, Principles of Micro. Uh, and that opening lecture is one of my favorites. Um, I talk about – well, I mean it's a three-hour class, so I talk about a lot of things. But I like to open up with the song from the 30s. I believe it's the 1930s um, called The Big Rock Candy Mountain where it's all about um, this um, drifter who is like, all right, boys, I'm headed off to the Big Rock Candy Mountain where nobody has to work and – you know, uh, rivers just flow wherever you want. There's, you know, anything you want, you just get it. I use that as a lead-in. Like, well, we don't live on the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Um, there's, you know, we we were expelled from Eden. We live in a world of scarcity where we now have to sweat, toil, and work. And that's where our, our field economics comes up. These are the questions that we're we're dealing with here. With intro, I like to use lots of very different, sometimes very weird um, examples. I like to use silly examples, you know, anything that can really drive home the point. Uh, I think the most interesting class that I've taught is law and economics. That, I believe, has some of the most interesting applications of the economic way of thinking. So, for example, um, we like to, uh, to talk about, you know, being tough on crime. And uh, so one of the interesting things that Gary Becker has shown and we've seen over and over and over again, both theoretically and empirically, is you can be too tough on crime and actually make crime worse. So, for example, if say the crime, the punishment for any sort of crime, shoplifting, is uh, capital execution, so the death penalty. Well, if a person gets shoplift, uh, gets caught shoplifting, the marginal cost of them shooting a cop to get away is zero. And the marginal benefit, or even the expected marginal benefit, so the expected benefit times the probability that it occurs, uh, is greater than zero. 
So the interesting application is if you make the uh, punishment for petty crimes too high, you actually lower the um, the uh, marginal cost of more violent crimes and encourage those crimes to take place. Uh, and that's a very weird uh, or very um, different kind of outcome. And I lo- whenever I teach that, because uh, your gut feeling is, well, yeah, you know, you increase the costs, you get less of it. It's like, yes, you're increasing some costs, but you're lowering other relative costs. And it has all kinds of interesting um, fallout and great conversations. Um, and like so much, so much of, I, I think, law and economics is really open for conversation. Like, why do we assign property rights the way we do? Um, I actually have an article, if you forgive the self-plug, the article, I have an article coming out at libertarianism.org um, in a couple of days on that very topic. Um, and, you know, we, we tend to just say, oh, well, private property rights. Okay, well, what exactly does that mean? And there's a whole conversation there. What are just property rights? You know, what does economic efficiency mean in the context of, of law and econ? Uh, one of the things we talk about with tort law from an economic perspective is tort law, in theory, makes you indifferent between being injured and not. Well, um, Dom, how much would it cost for me – how much would I have to pay you to make you indifferent between losing an arm or not? Wow. Um I have no idea yeah, how I mean, much you'd have to pay me. The, the whole question is actually kind of absurd. Yeah, it is. Um, it's something I propose we can't even really consider, um, at least seriously. I mean, the the economists do. You know, we'll, we'll think it over. It's like, eh, I'd probably be okay with it for, I don't know, $4 million? Or, you know, you could do the real econ answer and say, well, the net present va- the discounted net present value of whatever my future income stream would have been if I had two arms. <laughs> But you know, it's a very it's a very silly question. It's a very very silly question, and you know, I think law and econ really allows for for things like that. I mean, this seems like the messy part of like preference elucidation. But I think that like in general, like coming back to like your petty crimes example, it seems like um, the the conjunction of like philosophy and math is like decision problems, and like economics does such a good job of like capturing all those decision problems and having like good discussions on them. Do you have like other types of examples that have like been particularly stimulating to your students? Um, hmm. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. The problem is I'm bad thinking on my feet. It's also very troubling, like that. Like with like math, for instance you just like you know how to think after a while like at least for like certain problems like this one and like with economics you're like thinking on your feet all the time like not just for examples which is the case right now but like you're thinking about every example on your feet which is absurd yeah and that's one of the hard things about teaching in general well it's hard but you get better at it you really start to improv or you start to see similar objections come over and over and over again Uh, so you can get used to preparing uh, for some of those objections. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more interaction to your point about philosophy and mathematics. You know, even mathematics has a philosophy aspect to it. Um, there's a literature, which I'm just barely familiar with, um, on causality. Mm-hmm. And boy, does that get really deep really fast, and most of it is well above my pay grade. Um, but, I mean, there, that's ultimately mathematics wrestling with a philosophical question and you know in economics we're doing a lot of the same thing 
then once you get into the territory of like decision problems and like the ethics of like well before you're like struggling with like the ethics of like answering a question like what does it mean to like lose one arm and like the moment you like bring it to like what would i have to pay to you like it becomes a decision problem like a lot more tractable and like i think causality and like perlian thinking is like one more vein of that where it's like oh you know how do you attribute cause to things and it's a, yeah it's a very interesting lecture uh literature and like i think pearl won like the turing award for his research in causality um it's a shame it hasn't become like a very huge thing yet but i think it'll be eventually yeah i mean i know very little judea pearl uh i know guido ivans um has more uh, or i know that literature a little bit more there's a lot of conversation between the two of them but you know, in law and economics, causality is a main thing mm-hmm. since one of the things that we ask judges to do is establish causality. In tort law, okay, how much of accident X was caused by person Y's behavior and person Z's behavior? In theory, that looks really straightforward. In reality, we're asking a lot of our judges, um, and it's a very, 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 very difficult thing. Okay, so we've mentioned the Nobel Prize a couple times. We've mentioned uh, other prizes as well. Um, Nobel Prize in Economics just announced um, recently. Um, By the time this airs, it'll be about two weeks ago. Um, So to all of our listeners in the future, that is is when they will be listening to this, that doesn't make any sense. To all of our listeners in the future, uh, it'll be two weeks ago by the time you listen to this. But it was... Um, it was an interesting thing because I gave it to three people, which is a big number. Is that have they ever given it to more than three people? Not that I'm aware I don't think of. So, yeah, I think this is. I could be wrong, but I think this is the first time they've given it to three. It's really, yeah. been two in the past, multiple times. Yeah, but I can't think of another case where it's been three. Sure. Yeah. Any uh, any hot takes on the on the Nobel Prize or uh, or on the prize in general, but also on uh, the the decision they made to give it to the three they did this year? Uh, Well, one, I like that it's a Nobel Prize. Um, And, you know, anybody who objects to say, well, it's not really a Nobel Prize, it's the Reichsbank, you know, prize in memorial of Alfred Nobel. No, dude, it's a Nobel. (laughs) (laughs) The economists are at the Nobel Museum in Stockholm. I have photographic evidence of this. The king of Stockholm refers to it as a Nobel Prize. The committee refers to it as a Nobel Prize. It's a Nobel. (laughs) Uh, so that's my hot take on the prize in general. All right, all right, that's good. Uh, these three, so I don't know a whole lot about their work. Um, I'm not really a developmental economist. Um, but uh, from what I know of them, I think the award was justly given. Um, they, um, unlike a lot of the other Nobels, they've been given it for small ideas. Um, you know, somebody like Jim Buchanan or Vernon Smith, our two Nobel Prize winners here, Doug North, um, Ronald Coase, they really had major ideas. But uh, the three winners this year, um, they're working in an established framework, but they're um, testing ideas through um, randomized control trials and really doing a lot of small-scale ideas as opposed to um, large-scale developmental econ. Um, And I think that's... um, I think that's a good thing. Some of uh, my friends and colleagues have criticized the the choice because 
they are technical economists as opposed to you know they're trying to solve that allocation problem as opposed to uh, studying exchange uh, that we were talking about earlier. But I think you know they are doing they're practically they're working practically on the ideas and. Uh, I think there is virtue in that, uh, and I'm glad that the Nobel Committee recognized the work. You know, we have um, the youngest winner of all time now, um, and um, um, she's uh, only the second winner, uh, second female winner of the Nobel Prize. Uh, her work is amazing, um, and you know, she's won multiple awards for uh for her past work so I, I think the committee made a really good decision this year um there are various websites that have you know different bios on potential nobel prize winners mm-hmm. uh and she wasn't even on the list which is uh, also why I, I love her um or i love this decision uh but um Banerjee and um the other guy uh kramer kramer, yeah. kramer um were on the list uh, and I think they were two of the best candidates out there. This year is also the 45th anniversary of Friedrich Hayek winning the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, we wrote a post on our blog about it that got retweeted by Peter Betke, so we're very excited about that. Um, uh, it was it was a very it was a big success. Um, but what do you have to say about because because Hayek's whole thing is because he wasn't a big fan of the Nobel Prize in economics, if I remember correctly. Wasn't he, wasn't he basically like you know we shouldn't be giving economists this kind of um, this kind of authority to to say that they you know that they're prize winners and we should like take everything that they say and be like oh remember they're a prize winner um, if I remember correctly he wasn't a fan of that but uh, what would you what would you say to that yeah so I, I mean I don't know Hayek's reaction off the top of my head uh, that wouldn't surprise me because he was a um, he was a humble person mm-hmm. and. The whole his whole corpus is humility. You know, like we what we what we know we know what we don't know we don't know what we don't know we don't know we don't know. His reaction to that wouldn't would not surprise me. I wish Hayek was taken a bit more seriously. He's kind of given um, lip treatment in a lot of the profession. There is so much to his work uh, that I think a lot of people. Um, don't quite understand even those who cite him. Hayek's uh, Nobel Prize speech was the pretense of knowledge that you mentioned earlier. And he said that was submitted uh, for publication in the journal that he um, edits, Econometrica, I think it was at the time. That got to revise and resubmit. (laughs) Um, So for those of you not in academic publishing, a revise and resubmit is basically an editor looks at your paper and says, yeah, this is good. At some point, you know, we might be willing to publish it, but you need to make these changes to it before it's publishable. And I could just imagine Hayek saying, I literally just gave this in Stockholm. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think Hayek is, is largely misunderstood, not misunderstood, but um, not completely understood. The pretense of knowledge um, – the pretense of knowledge does get misunderstood a lot, and his warnings against scientism does get uh, misinterpreted a lot. Scientism is not shunning all mathematics or regressions or econometrics, things like that. It's being aware of what exactly those models tell you and their uh, limitations. So um, sometimes people can go too far 
you know, just shun all mathematical economics because, you know, there's so much that we can't put into the models, like the inarticulate knowledge and the knowledge problem as a whole. Um, but I think that is itself a form of scientism, um, just in the opposite direction. Before we go, I got to talk about one more Nobel Prize winner with you. Um, because you're a law and econ guy, got to talk about Ronald Coase. Naturally. Ronald Coase, um, who kind of, I think it's fair to say he started law and econ, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he started two fields. He should have won the Nobel Prize twice. Yeah, wow. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he's famous for, because what he won the Nobel Prize for was for Nature of the Firm, right? Uh, he won the Nobel Prize for Nature of the Firm yeah. and Problem of Social Cost. Okay. Um, but really, each one deserved a Nobel Prize, because Problem of the Firm um, created the field of industrial organization. Yeah. Problem with Social Cost uh, created the uh, field of law and economics. Those are two massive ideas. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the remarkable thing about it that I learned is that he wrote Nature of the Firm when he was... Well, he was still an undergraduate, wasn't he? Yeah, I believe and, he wasn't. I think he was like barely 20. Yeah, he was like barely 20 and a socialist. And he yep. wrote Nature of the Firm. And then by the time he goes on to um, to write Problem of Social Costs, he's already this established guy then when he writes that. And he's established as this like free market guy. His whole kind of transition is very, very interesting. I highly recommend his book, um, the Firm, the Market, and the Law, which is a collection of the essays we just talked about. He also has um, uh, sort of appendix chapters where he, in his own words, explain uh, these ideas because um, especially the problem of social cho- cost is greatly misunderstood, mm-hmm. both by Kosians and non-Kosians. And, I mean, do you know the story of uh, when he tried to get that idea uh, published uh, the problem of social cost. That whole story at University of Chicago. The the one where he got all the economists in the room and like changed all their minds. Yeah. So yeah, as, tell tell it. I love this story. Yeah, please tell um, it. Essentially, so Ronald Coase was a professor at the University of Virginia, and he gets called up to present this idea, the problem of social cost, uh, to the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago is a notoriously difficult place to uh, present an idea. I mean. They rip you to shreds. And this is at the time where on the, on the faculty there, we're talking, we've got Milton Friedman, we've got Aaron Director, we've got... Jo- George Stiegler. Yeah. You got... Becker? Uh, uh, Gary Becker. Was, was he, he around? Maybe not. I think he was a grad student at this point. Okay. Because this was the 60s. Yeah. Um, but you've got, some, you've got some of the biggest names in 20th century economics are, are hanging out at University of Chicago. Yeah. These are literally the people who created the Chicago School of Economics. Yeah. <laughs> So Coase gets up there. He stands up to give his presentation, and I believe it's um, Aaron Director, uh, holds up his hand and says, all right, who here believes um, uh, Dr. Coase's uh, argument in this paper? One hand goes up. You know whose hand that was? It was Coase. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody else did. And, you know, Coase is probably thinking to himself, well, crap. (laughs) So he then gives his next... I think it was like an hour and a half where he probably spent 10 minutes talking and the other 80 minutes just getting grilled. Well, as the tradition goes, there's an after party at Aaron Director's house. And uh, Coase, I guess, I think uh, Coase corners Milton Friedman. And 
Of course, this is over drinks, as you know, all good ideas are discussed. Corners Milton Friedman and just starts, you know, hammering this idea over and over and over again. It's like, look, this is just marginal cost, marginal benefit, and you know, total cost, total benefit, blah 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 blah, drilling it over and over. And finally, Friedman's like, oh my God, you're right. So the two of them go to work on everybody else in that room, <laughs> cornering when necessary. And at the end of the party, director repeats his question. And everybody's hand goes up. Wow. Coast gets published, and it becomes the single – I believe it's the single most yeah. cited article in economics, yeah. if not all of the social sciences. Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely incredible. And I, I just like the idea of, uh, of of Friedman and Coase going around good cop and bad cop. I'm trying to think about who would be who. Would be who. Um, because cause it, it would have been especially funny because, you know, Friedman was famously short, mm-hmm. and Coase was famously tall. Wasn't he a very? He was. Uh, I believe he was tall. He also was a very, a very quiet person. Yeah. If you want, if you ever want to hear something hilarious, get Doctor Nye here uh, to do his impression of Coase. Okay. Because Coase, he talked out of the side of his mouth <laughs> like this, <laughs> and just watching Doctor Nye do the impression is absolutely hilarious. But yeah, so like I just have this headcanon of you know super tall Coase, super short Friedman cornering people, and you know. I would. I imagine Friedman was the good cop. Uh, yeah. Well, Coase was the bad cop. <laughs> we should ask for any other reading recommendations. Uh, so let me ask a clarifying question. Is this for people who uh, have some knowledge in economics or like my grandma? Let's make it your grandma, someone who strongly disagrees with at least two things you've said in the podcast, <laughs> and also someone who like, really likes everything that you've said and just wants to know what how you think um all right i would recommend first and foremost kind of my go-to is stephen landsberg the armchair economist that's a good solid book that lays out um a lot of the economic way of thinking i would also recommend vernon smith and bart wilson's new book that i talked about a little bit earlier humanomics it's expensive i mean the paperback edition is 35 dollars, something like that but it is worth it. I would also recommend Russ Roberts' book, How Adam Smith uh, Can Make Your Life Better, or something along those lines. It's a beautiful summation of the theory of moral sentiments without getting bogged down in a lot of the uh, philosophical nitty-gritty. Um, and it's, I think, the, a good foundation of a lot of the things that I've been saying and, and talking about. And Russ um, is a very careful writer and a very good writer. Yeah, I think those three books, and if you only have time for one or two, arm, uh, in this order, Russ Roberts' book on Adam Smith uh, and Armchair uh, Economist. All right, well, thank you so much for being here, John. Thank you for having me. Uh, Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University in conjunction with the wonderful folks at WGMU. Special thanks to General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash EconSociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, And whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan and Determinate.